Friends podcast. I'm your host, Katherine Singer. I'm a Christian writer and blogger living in the beautiful state of Alaska. I'm also a trauma survivor and a mental health advocate. I've been through some tough things in my life, and I'm sure you have too. Grace Moments is about helping you hold on to belief in your darkest hours, embrace hope by knowing your suffering is never wasted, and be inspired by the stories of others who have survived their own tragedy. Life, however difficult, can be a meaningful journey, and I'm here to walk it with you. So let's do this together. Have you ever experienced a time when someone offered you a timely word of hope or encouragement? Maybe you were having the worst day ever, and a text or a call came through that comforted you or lifted your spirits and made you feel like you could keep going. I certainly have. And sometimes the other person has had no idea that what they said was so needful for me to hear. There's nothing quite like a word in season, perfectly suited to offer grace to another in great need of it. We have the power to speak words of life to one another, and when we do, it can be such a faith booster to both people involved. Today we're going to look at two men who were gifted at doling out such words to those around them. And I believe we can learn a lot from them about how to use our words to convey compassion, hope, and love to others, especially when they are suffering. I'm excited about this episode today, friends, so let's get started. January 23rd, 1787. A minister sits down to write a letter to his good friend, a fellow minister. The envelope is addressed to a certain Reverend John Ryland, Jr. The friendship and correspondence has been going for some years, and the two are quite close. They have encouraged one another, counseled, and challenged one another, but always with a spirit of Christian brotherhood and mutual care. My dear friend, the letter begins, I feel, but I do not fear for you. The God whom thou servest, he can support and deliver you. He is all-sufficient, and his promise is sure. Plenty of advice is at hand, but I dare not offer you much in this way. You are in the heat of a trial. I am at present in quiet. It would be easy for me to press patience and resignation upon you, and to remind you that a pardoned sinner ought never to complain. You could speak the same language to me if I were in your case and you were at ease. Yet though we may and ought to be compassionate to one another under our various trials, and to speak with tenderness when the heart is wounded, there are truths which, if trouble hides them from view, it is the office of a friend to recall them. You and I are ministers. As such, how often have we commended the gospel as affording those who truly receive it a balm for every wound, a cordial for every care? How often have we told our hearers that our all-sufficient and faithful Lord can and will make good of every want and loss? How often have we spoken of the light of his countenance as a full compensation for every suffering, and that trials of the present life are not worthy to be compared with the exceeding abundant and eternal weight of glory to which they are leading. We must not therefore wonder if we are sometimes called to exemplify the power of what we have said, and to show our people that we have not said before them unfelt truths which have learnt from books and men only. You are now in a post of honor, and many eyes are upon you. 
May the Lord enable you to glorify Him and to encourage them by your exemplary submission to His will. The writer of these words was none other than John Newton. Most people know him today as the former slave trader and author of the timeless hymn Amazing Grace. But what is less well known is that he authored numerous other hymns, wrote several books, preached hundreds of sermons, and was actually best known in his day for his letter writing. Newton always seemed to have the perfect message for those he corresponded with, and volumes of these personal letters have survived and been published for others to read and be benefited. I was first introduced to the letters of Newton around 14 years ago, and have since returned time and time again to their profound wisdom and comfort during many trying times in my own life. Newton always seemed to strike the perfect balance of instruction and sympathy for those with whom he communicated, following the Holy Spirit's lead and giving them the just right word that was suited to their circumstances. A couple centuries later, another man would become known for his ability to offer the same, his letters filling an entire volume of over 300 pages that was later published to share with the world. His name was Henry Nowen. Those who wrote to him, whether or not they knew him well, were struck by his genuine and authentic replies and willingness to engage and advise them in all manner of situations. This 20th century minister took much the same approach as Newton, using the means of letter writing to convey truth, sympathy, and hope to those he corresponded with. In our modern day, letter writing of this sort has definitely fallen out of style, and especially communication of any depth between people has become more obsolete as technology allows people to say less, faster, and society's pace drives us all to greater levels of busyness, taking away the time we might think to spend on saying something to someone of any substance. When we may have the chance to communicate a word of wisdom or hope, we often settle for a simple, I'll be praying for you, missing an open door for deeper encouragement. And if we do offer anything more, we often fail to say it in a suitable way for the situation, coming across as too insensitive or preachy. Newton and Nowen, however, mastered this art of knowing the right thing to say to a person, leaving behind a trail of beautiful and insightful words for not only their recipients, but now for all of us. And I want to point out a few lessons we can take away from these letters that may help us to better understand how to speak a word in season to those around us when God presents an opportunity. First, both men were blatantly honest when they wrote to others. They did not hide their own inner struggles or trials as they penned their letters, but rather sought to identify with the sufferings of those they wrote to. Newton, in particular, was brutally candid when it came to his own walk with God, humbly and vulnerably speaking about his flaws and need for grace in a way few would even think of doing today. In 1762, he wrote to a Miss Medhurst, Every new day is filled up with new things, new mercies on the Lord's part, new ingratitude on mine, instances of the vileness of my nature, and new proofs of the power of sovereign pardoning grace new hills of difficulty, new valleys of humiliation, and now and then, though alas how very short and seldom, new glimpses of what I would be and where I would be. The everlasting love of God, the unspeakable merits of Christ's righteousness, and the absolute freeness of the gospel promises, these form the threefold cord by which my soul maintains a hold of that which is within the veil. Sin, Satan, and unbelief often attempt to make me let go, 
and cast away my confidence, but as yet they have not prevailed. No thanks to me, who am weaker than water, but I am wonderfully kept by the mighty power of God, who is pleased to take my part, and therefore I trust in him that they shall never prevail against me. To a Miss Delafield he wrote in 1773, referring to his conversion, My heart was once like a dungeon, out of the reach of day and always dark. The Lord by his grace has been pleased to make this dungeon a room by putting windows in it. But I need not tell you that though windows will transmit the daylight into a room, they cannot supply the want of it. When the day is gone, windows are of little use. When the day returns, the room is enlightened by them again. Thus, unless the Lord shines, I cannot retain today the light I had yesterday, and though his presence makes a delightful difference, I have no more to boast of in myself at one time than another. Yet when it is dark, I am warranted to expect the return of light again. When he is with me, all goes on pleasantly. When he withdraws, I find I can do nothing without him. I need not wonder that I find it so, for it must be so, of course, if I am what I confess myself to be, a poor, helpless, sinful creature in myself. Nor need I be overmuch discouraged, since the Lord has promised to help those who can do nothing without him, not those who can make a tolerable shift to help themselves. Through mercy he does not so totally withdraw as to leave me, without any power or will, to cry for his return." In another letter to his good friend, Rev. John Ryland, Jr., he penned in 1775, My soul is like a besieged city, a legion of enemies without the gates, and a nest of restless traitors within, that hold a correspondence with them without, so that I am deceived and counteracted continually. It is a mercy that I have not been surprised and overwhelmed long ago. Without help from on high, it would soon be over with me. How often have I been forced to cry out, O God, the heathen are got into thine inheritance. Thy holy temple have they defiled and defaced all thy work. Indeed, it is a miracle that I still hold out. I trust, however, I shall be supported to the end, and that my Lord will at length raise the siege and cause me to shout deliverance and victory. Pray for me that my walls may be strengthened and wounds healed. Making use of a different metaphor in a letter to Rev. William Bull, Newton wrote, At present it is January with me, both within and without. The outward sun shines and looks pleasant, but his beams are faint and too feeble to dissolve the frost. So it is in my heart. I have many bright and pleasant beams of truth in my view, but cold predominates in my frost-bound spirit, and they have but little power to warm me. Henry Nowen echoed much the same sentiment when he wrote to a professor friend of his named Bob in 1988. What I am experiencing is a really deep spiritual crisis in which I realize that God wants all of my heart, not simply a part of it. It seems as if he wants to test my faithfulness and commitment in a new way. He is really asking me to let go of everything that does not bring me closer to him. He calls me to a more generous prayer life and to a more fearless ministry. This year is a kind of desert year to purify my heart. It is painful, but also full of grace. The year before, he had written to a certain Father John Eudes, If the spiritual life is a life in which one's problems and inner anguish are gradually and progressively overcome, my life is a complete failure. Often it seems that growing older means losing many of one's youthful resistances 
and leads to an increasing awareness of the dark forces in one's heart and to an always more naked confrontation with the demons. There is less and less in me that I can trust, and I depend more and more on the mercy of Jesus. Only by clinging to him can I remain faithful. Honesty seems to have been a hallmark of these men's lives and a powerful entrance point into greater intimacy with those they wrote to. By them laying bare their own souls and sharing their own imperfections, those that received the letters felt a little less alone in their own struggles to combat the sin nature and believe God more. This was particularly powerful coming from both these men, as each of them was in ministry, and often people can get the idea that such individuals might not struggle with the things the rest of us do. Now and in Newton shoot down this myth quickly by confessing that the spiritual life continues to be a struggle for them, even as they see evidences of Christ sanctifying them. If we are to meet people who are struggling on their level, we have to be willing to be honest about our own souls. We have to be willing to relate on a real level by admitting our personal weaknesses and our constant need for Christ. Honesty breaks down barriers between people, and we must be brave enough to be the first to confess we have issues of our own to deal with, too. Second, both men were conveyors of truth in the letters they wrote, always looking for an opportunity to point people to the gospel and to Christ, no matter their situation. In 1764, when writing to a Mrs. Wilberforce, aunt of the celebrated British statesman who helped to abolish the slave trade, Newton endeavored to bolster her spirits under trial, saying, The Lord has chosen, called, and armed us for the fight. And shall we wish to be excused? Shall we not rather rejoice that we have the honor to appear in such a cause, under such a captain, such a banner, and in such a company? A complete suit of armor is provided, weapons not to be resisted, and a precious balm to heal us if we happily receive a wound, and precious ointment to revive us when we are in danger of fainting. Further, we are assured of the victory beforehand, and oh, what a crown is prepared for every conqueror, which Jesus, the righteous judge, the gracious Savior, shall place upon every faithful head with his own hand. Then let us not be weary and faint, for in due season we shall reap. A few years after, in 1767, he wrote to Reverend Thomas Jones, who was dealing with internal struggles, Now and then you will, as is usual in the course of war, lose a battle. But be not discouraged, but rally your forces and return to the fight. There is a comfortable word, a leaf of the tree of life, for healing the wounds we received. If the enemy surprises you, and your heart smites you, do not stand astonished as if there were no help, nor give way to sorrow as if there were no hope, nor attempt to heal yourself, but away immediately to the throne of grace, to the great physician, to the compassionate high priest, and tell him all. Satan knows that if he can keep us from confession, our wounds will rankle. But when we are simple and open-hearted in abasing ourselves before the Lord, though we have acted foolishly and ungratefully, he will seldom let us remain long without affording us a sense of his compassion, for he is gracious. He knows our frame and how to bear with us, though we can hardly bear with ourselves or with one another. Nowen, when writing in 1988 to his friend Hans, observed, It is indeed a great joy to belong to the Lord and to really live in intimate communion with him. 
I have discovered that God hears my prayers and sends his spirit to me if I keep crying out to him. You are right when you say that the struggle is not just a personal struggle, but is a struggle between the powers of light and the powers of darkness. Jesus is already the victor, as you say, and that conviction should allow me to be engaged in the struggle in a very confident way. In 1992, he responded to a man named Ken trying to discern his calling. I know it is a hard and often painful journey, but I am deeply convinced that if you could keep saying the simple prayer of, Not my will, but your will be done, you will gradually hear the gentle voice of God's love for you and come to know which direction he is leading you. Both Newton and Nowen are proof that friendship and communication ought to call you back to the truths of the gospel when you have forgotten it yourself, and real encouragement lies in helping to turn the eyes of the one who is struggling back onto Christ, his sufficiency, and the eternal victory won by Jesus for us on the cross. But in order to remind others of these truths, we must be steeped in them ourselves. We must spend time with God and His Word so that we have something to impart to those around us when the situation calls for it. I can guarantee that neither of these men would have been able to remind others of the truth and to call upon their faith in the way they did without spending time with God and His Word faithfully on their own. Third, graciousness was another characteristic often found in these letters, especially Newton's. Sometimes to the dismay of others who felt he should be more hardcore when it came to certain groups of people or beliefs, he was often willing to give allowance for where others were in their spiritual growth, knowing full well that he hadn't figured everything out himself. In 1757, he wrote to a Mr. Whitford, The longer I live, the more I see of the vanity and the sinfulness of our unchristian disputes. They eat up the very vitals of religion. I grieve to think how often I have lost my time and my temper that way in presuming to regulate the vineyards of others when I have neglected my own, when the beam in my own eye had so contracted my sight that I could discern nothing but the moat in my neighbors. I am now desirous to choose a better part. Could I speak the publican's words with a proper feeling, I wish not for the tongue of men or angels to fight about notions or sentiments. I allow that every branch of gospel truth is precious, that errors are abounding, and that it is our duty to bear an honest testimony to what the Lord has enabled us to find comfort in and to instruct with meekness such as are willing to be instructed. But I cannot see it my duty, nay, I believe it would be my sin, to attempt to beat my notions into other people's heads. Too often I have attempted it in times past, but now I judge that both my zeal and my weapons were carnal." When our dear Lord questioned Peter after his fall and recovery, he said not, Art thou wise, learned, and eloquent? Nay, he said not, Art thou clear and orthodox? But this only, Lovest thou me? An answer to this was sufficient then, and why not now? Any other answer we may believe would have been insufficient then. If Peter had made the most pompous confession of his faith and sentiments, still the first question would have reoccurred, Lovest thou me? Being too quick to judge the motives, spiritual condition, experience, or knowledge of others puts us in a position that, Newton observes, is unchristian. Forgetting to check your own self first before you offer advice or counsel to others can be, as he described, a situation where you are more concerned with the behavior of others rather than your own. 
A gracious heart is key if you are to offer an appropriate word of comfort or encouragement to someone else. Being mindful of their heart or present condition, not placing yourself in a position of being their moral or spiritual police, but simply starting from a point of genuine care and always making sure that you are dealing with your own self first and foremost, believing the Holy Spirit is capable of addressing everyone's needs better than you even can. Your job is to love, not fix, not convict, not judge, not criticize. Love God, and out of that, love people. That's it. Finally, both men comforted others with their words. There was this particular tone of love and empathy that permeated their letters, a tone not often found in our communication today. There was a real sense of personal identifying with the other person's pain, offering them authentic hope in their situation because they themselves had experienced it. Newton was especially adept at seeking to console and comfort those in trials, seeing as he himself dealt with his share of them, particularly in regards to his beloved wife's ill health for many years. Referencing this, he wrote to a Captain Clooney in 1766, It is a comfort under all changes to be enabled to look to covenant love and special grace. The Lord has promised to direct, moderate, sanctify, and relieve every trial of every kind. I long to have a more entire submission to His will, and a more steadfast confidence in His word, to trust Him and to wait on Him, to see His hand and praise His name in every circumstance of life, great and small. The more of this Spirit, the more heaven is begun on earth, and why should we not trust Him at all times? Which part of our past experience can we charge Him with unfaithfulness? Has He not done all things well? And is he not the same yesterday, today, and forever? O my soul, wait thou only upon him. To his friend Daniel West, he penned in 1766, You have been lately in the furnace, and are now brought safely out. I hope you have much to say of the grace, care, and skill of the great refiner who watched over you, and that you have lost nothing but dross. Let this experience be treasured up in your heart for the use of future times. Other trials will come, but you have found the Lord faithful to his promise and have good encouragement to trust him again. Some years later, in 1773, Newton would write to West again, I doubt not, but you likewise have your share of trials. But when the love of God is shed abroad in the heart by the Holy Ghost, it sweetens what bitter things the Lord puts in our cup and enables us to say, none of these things move us. Is it not happiness to have an infallible guide, an invincible guard, an almighty friend, to be able to say of the Maker of heaven and earth, He is my beloved, my shepherd, my Savior, and to say to Him, Let waves and thunders mix and roar, Be Thou my God, I ask no more. While Thou art sovereign, I am secure. I shall be rich till Thou art poor. Especially in matters related to grief, both Newton and Nowen seemed to have a gentle touch when it came to comforting those who mourned. Writing to a lady named Mary in 1989, Nowen said, It really meant a lot to me that you were willing to share this struggle and pain with me, especially that you were willing to let me know not only about your grief, but also about the deep faith with which you live it. I am becoming more and more aware how profound is the call to love God with our whole mind, our whole heart, and our whole soul. 
Only then will it be possible to let go of people we deeply love without being deeply wounded by loss. It is such a great mystery that God calls us to love one another and at the same time calls us to love Him with our whole being. Increasingly, I come to see that grief, in the most spiritual sense, is the way to enter more fully into the heart of God and there remain deeply connected with the source of love, the same love that allowed us to be so close to our friends. The risk of loving is always great because everyone you deeply love will also become a source of grief and pain for you at times during their life or by their death. Grief, when lived in faith and great trust, can lead us even closer to the heart of God where we can find the deepest consolation and comfort. Be sure that I pray for you in this time of grief. Now and begins by acknowledging Mary's trust in wanting to share her grief with him and also her trust in God during such a hard time. Then he goes on to share a bit of what he's learned from his own losses, pointing her back to the fact that this pain can be an entrance point into greater communion with God. His words are spoken in a general sense, not directly to her, but mostly in regard to how he's learned to view loss. And then he leaves her with the assurance that she is in his prayers. Centuries earlier, in 1778, Newton took a similar approach and would console a certain Mrs. Thornton after a recent loss by saying, What shall I say? Topics of consolation are at hand in abundance. They are familiar to your mind. And was I to fill the sheet with them, I could suggest nothing but what you already know. Then they are consolatory indeed when the Lord himself is pleased to apply them to the heart. This he has promised and therefore we are encouraged to expect it. This is my prayer for you. I sincerely sympathize with you. I cannot comfort you, but he can, and I trust he will. Newton admits that there is a lot he could say to her in the midst of her suffering, but he knows that this is not the time for endless words or a mini-sermon. This is rather a time for heartfelt sympathy and compassion, and that is what he gives her. He reminds her that God will faithfully impress upon her those truths suitable to her situation, but then he leaves his advice at that. Instead, he acknowledges his human inability to properly comfort her, but God's infinite ability to do so. He later adds in the same letter, We often complain of losses, but the expression is rather improper. Strictly speaking, we can lose nothing because we have no real property in anything. Our earthly comforts are lent us, and when recalled, we ought to return and resign them with thankfulness to him who has let them remain so long in our hands. There are times when everything we could say would only come up short in properly consoling those who are grieving a loss, but to simply stop at, sorry for your loss, might not be enough. Newton finds a perfect balance here of once again employing honesty, truth, and graciousness, understanding the right thing to say in the situation letting Mrs. Thornton know that he was sincere in his thoughts and prayers toward her circumstances, but that ultimately God could provide so much more than he could. In delving a bit into these beautiful letters, we can begin to grasp a deeper sense of what true Christian encouragement ought to look like under any and all circumstances. Knowing how to properly speak a fitting word to someone takes patience, tact, discernment, and most importantly, love. It takes coming at it from a place of honesty, admitting our own imperfections and inabilities so that we make others feel more understood and accepted for their weaknesses. It takes knowing how to communicate the truth, but to code it with tons of love 
so that your words are received well instead of thrown in the other person's face. Giving out truth without the proper attitude or spirit can result in even greater wounding than has already occurred in the situation. It takes graciousness, bearing with one another's insecurities and failings, knowing that God bears with so much more from all of us put together, and it takes understanding how to point others to Christ in their struggles, reminding them of Christ's ability to comfort, sustain, strengthen, and uphold them in their weak condition. I'm challenged when I read these letters to let my words say more when I communicate to others who are hurting. I want what I say to be a word in season, suited to the situation, and guided by the Holy Spirit so that it is as fitting and properly given as possible. I want the other person to feel as though I have soothed their soul instead of incited it to greater pain and distress. Even when I have to challenge them, I want to do so in love rather than just stating the truth. Next time you find yourself searching for words when someone you know is struggling or hurting, perhaps what you've hopefully taken away from today's episode will help you. Ask yourself what the situation is requiring at that moment. Is it honesty? Does the other person need to hear you identify with them and confess your own struggle? Do they need truth? Do you need to lovingly challenge them and gently stir up their faith and courage in the Lord? Do they need graciousness and lots of understanding and perhaps have you overlook something and simply try to be patient with them? Or do they need comfort and words of empathy and compassion for their situation, reminding them that it's okay to be hurting right now and that you're there to pray for and sympathize with them in their pain? In that moment, only you and God will know the right answer to what is necessary. But trust the Holy Spirit's leading and call upon your past experience of walking with God, offering a suitable word of hope, grace, and comfort in the same manner John Newton and Henry Nouwen did, ultimately seeking to imitate the example of your Savior himself. Thanks so much for listening. If you liked what you heard on today's episode, please subscribe to this podcast as well as leave a review. If you want to read additional content, please visit and subscribe to my blog at www.graceopens.blogspot.com. You can also connect with me on social media via Twitter at OpenToGrace2015, Instagram and Parlor at OpenToGraceAlaska, and on MeWe under my name, Katherine Singer. I'll see you in the next episode, and remember, Grace will always meet you where you are. Thank you.